Good evening, everyone. Welcome. I want to thank you guys for coming out this evening for the book signing for A-Rod Womack for Redwood. We appreciate your presence here. My name is Crystal Albass. I am also an author and a playwright. And my good friend here asked me to introduce him tonight, and I'm very happy to do so. Very proud of him. And as a fellow author, I know how daunting it can be to have a book signing and wonder who's showing up. So we appreciate you being here. So let me tell you a little bit about Rod. Oh, we have more people coming in. Come on up to the front. This is an intimate situation. It's all about books, and we're talking and chatting tonight, so don't be shy. Come on up. Come on up. <laughs> okay, so, so let me tell you guys a little bit about our fantastic author of the evening. A-Rod Womack is a talented writer whose motivation and passion for storytelling distinguishes him from many of his contemporaries. Redwood is his first book. A-Rod co-owned his first company at 18 years old. What an accomplishment that is. His entrepreneurial experience spans numerous industries including restaurants, real estate development, construction, concert promotions, and more. In 2010, he left the private sector and worked as a business liaison for Baltimore City Schools and was later appointed Managing Director of Food and Nutrition for Baltimore City Schools. His many years of experience as an entrepreneur, combined with his fascinating life experiences, bring an uncommon thread of realism to his material. His writing style has been called uniquely visceral. Womack's love of writing has led him to develop his next intriguing entitled, his intriguing book entitled Central Office, and we can't wait for that, which he promises will leave his readers craving for more. Mr. Womack holds a BA degree in philosophy from University of Maryland, Baltimore County. Without further ado, let me introduce my friend, the brilliant A-Rod Womack. Wow, that was nice. I just got called brilliant. <laughs> that might be the first time in, 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 in my life I've been called brilliant. Um, but no, uh, first, uh, I just want to thank Crystal. Uh, Crystal's a dynamic writer herself. Um, she's uh, written a, a novel. Uh, she has a, a play that's already um, she's uh, produced um, in Baltimore at the Lyric. It did very well, and we're in um, uh, talks right now to bring that back to the Lyric in June. So I'm very excited for her. So thanks again for introducing me. I want to give you a round of applause. <clears throat> so this is my uh, this is my first book, uh, Redwood, uh, and and I, I thank each and every one of you for for coming out and just uh, uh, j joining me tonight um, in uh, this uh, author's event. I want to certainly thank um, Enoch Pratt. I want to thank uh, Teresa uh, Edmonds and and Dr. Hayden, who just left the room, who runs Enoch Pratt Library, um, and uh, you know. This has been an interesting experience. I was just um, telling the folks from uh, Ivy Ann that, um, you know, I thought that publishing a book and, and, and getting it out to the public was going to be a lot like turning on your car and just sort of driving. And once you got it going, you'll get to pretty much where you're trying to go um, as long as it has gas in it. And I got plenty of gas in me. 
but it just doesn't work like that. <laughs> there, it takes an incredible amount of inertia to get um, uh, your name out there, to get your material out there, to get folks to to want to read it, to want to recognize it, to get the PR. Um, it's just not an easy endeavor. So it, it's it's made me um, have. Uh, or caused me to have a lot of uh, respect for 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 authors and and writers and what they have to um, go through to really elevate themselves and get their material out there. <clears throat> so that said, I'm going to talk just a little bit, and I, and I hope that this can be interactive. Um, I, I really I've traveled all over the country talking about Redwood. As a matter of fact, I just got back from Nairobi, Kenya, which was an amazing trip, um, and I got a chance to speak there two or three times and. Um, I'm, I'm getting ready to go out of the country again in June, and I'll be talking some more um, about Redwood and sharing this uh, this you know fascinating story with with folks. Um, people have asked me, you know, why did you write the book? And for me, uh, the answer is, is pretty simple. First thing, it was on my heart and on my spirit for so long. It took me six years, honestly, to get this book out of my body, out of my mind. Um, and it was not an easy journey. As a matter of fact, believe it or not, it, I literally went through a, a, a computer crashing on me in the middle of writing the book. Uh, one day I came out to my car, my laptop had been stolen out of the trunk. The trunk was busted open, broken open into, and the laptop was stolen. It had the entire manuscript and I did not have it backed up. So every challenge that you can imagine, I faced in getting this book done. But the more I faced it, just because the type of person I am mostly, I'm just a really determined person, I just came to the point that nothing was going to really stop me from getting it done. And the more challenges I had, the more I uh, stood up to kind of be prepared to face those challenges. I was not going to stop, in in other words. And so um, I just came to the the conclusion that... um, in 2013, 2014, that I was going to finish this book finally. Because for me, of course, I'm writing part-time. It's not full-time. So it's off and on. You pick it up. You put it down. You read something uh, that you wrote um, um, a week ago, and you can't believe that you wrote it because <laughs> it's so bad, <laughs> you know? So, you, you know, you go back and revisit it and scrap it and rewrite it. It's the same thing that most authors deal with. So, you know, I've, I've had those ups and downs. Um, but finally we have this product Redwood. Um, so let me just go into a little bit about Redwood and, um, what makes it, I think compelling. And I think that some of the reviews that I've received, um, suggest the same. And that is, I've, I've said many times, it's like peeling open an onion. It's the, this book, Barnes and Noble is trying to right now place Redwood in their stores. And believe it or not, our biggest issue, and they want to put it in a whole bunch of stores. The problem is that the buyers, we can't, they can't figure out where to put it because it's, it's nonfiction, but it's creative nonfiction. It's not a biography necessary necessarily you know so it it falls into a a sort of strange uh, category for an african-american author and part of it is just that you know barnes and nobles is is still getting their arms around you know 
uh, like a lot of bookstores in promoting African-American authors and how we kind of fit in with, with our material. But this is, is a little different. So, yeah, we ran this, in, this incredible restaurant called the Redwood Grill back in the mid-'90s. Some of you probably have visited the Redwood Grill. If you've ever been there, raise your hand. I know at least a couple of y'all have been there. All right, good. And it was, you know, it was an exciting place. Um, you know, uh, many people call it the place to be in, in the mid-'90s, man. Um, if, you were, if you were downtown and you were looking for something to do on a Friday, Saturday night, excuse me the redwood grill was probably the place you came um there were times when people waited an hour just to get into the grill um celebrities from all over you know and i talk about that in the book and i share that story um we um we met will smith through gene hackman we did uh, events for gene hackman several actually and then will came to one of them i didn't even know he was coming uh he came to the event and uh he he loved the place he loved everything we were doing his people got in touch with us um about a month later and then we we hosted he and and jada's um it wasn't an engagement party. It was the night before they got married. It was sort of like a, recep- uh, a rehearsal dinner, if you will. And uh, that went pretty well. When you, when you get into the book, you'll find that there was a, a very interesting, strange, um, sort of macabre twist at the end of that event. But um, it, the, event, the event itself went very well. Um, but part of the roller coaster ride. Um, um, there were other people, Tyra Banks, lots of celebrities used to come through the grill, which helped to, I think, create to the ambiance, the popularity of it, the mystique of the Redwood Grill. Um, but it wasn't all good. It wasn't all good. And that's what I write about. So at the heart of this book really is an entrepreneurial story. That's really what's at the heart of this book. So people, you know, ask me, well, what is really the book about? It's about what young, sh- struggling entrepreneurs go through, especially African-American entrepreneurs were going through. Okay, and so I think there are lots of um, takeaways from the book. Um, uh, Yeah, we talk about the good times. We talk about the bad times. We had a, as most of you know, the cover says it, the the subtitle. You know, we had a head cook who I was very close to. My partners were close to. There were three of us. Edwin Avent, Cleveland Jared, and myself. And this guy happened to be a serial killer. And... um, how do we know that? Well, he he uh, did not seem particularly strange. He didn't. No one can look at a guy and tell he's a serial killer. It's not how it works. They 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 walk among us. Um, can someone let? Him? Okay, got him. They yeah they walk among us. So so unfortunately they don't have anything stamped on their foreheads that say serial killer. Um, but what uh, did occur is after about two years of working with us, he just disappeared. I go into sort of his his backstory in the book, and the FBI rolled in one day, and I happened to be there, which I was most of the time, because I also was the general manager, so owner and general manager. So um, I happened to be there, and these two FBI agents walked in, and they were looking for him, and um, they wouldn't tell me why, but uh, it it was later revealed after they finally caught up with him um, that uh, he was being charged with some um, pretty heinous crimes. So that's when it came to our attention. So now we have this even more sort of surreal situation. So you own this restaurant, the only African-American owned restaurant downtown Baltimore. So across from us was Larry Stewart's, but they were more of a bar lounge. And they were friends of ours, and we, we, we had a lot of synergy together and chemistry by being on that same block. But we were really a restaurant. 
you know? And so we were the only African-American restaurant. We had a bunch of celebrities coming through, popular place. Everyone knew us. And then you find out your head cook is a serial killer. Life starts to get a little bit interesting right there, right? And so as the story goes on, um, there's a lot of good things and interesting things and people and characters in this book. Um, I, I talk about a couple of them, and it's not all about celebrity. It's not all about glitz and glamour. There's a character in this book named Nabil. When you read the book, you'll come to um, know Nabil. He was, in, in the restaurant world, you know, there's like a um, um, levels of, of sort of, um, it's almost like a totem pole. In, in, in the restaurant. So sort of um, the managers and the, and the chefs are sort of at the top of it. And sometimes the bus boys and the, and, and the dishwashers sometimes can be seen as at the bottom of that totem pole. For whatever reason, that's just the way the restaurant business is. So Nabil was actually a, a um, bus boy slash dishwasher. He was Pakistani. And um, very fascinating guy. And I had to include him in the book Although there were so many fascinating people that we came in contact with, I had to, because some of the things that I learned from him and about him, as you read the book, you'll find out some incredible things about his life and how he ended up here from Pakistan and what he did while he was in Pakistan and how a brain like that was washing my dishes and I couldn't believe it. Like, that's what this story is about. So it is uh, a, a, a combination of lots of sub-stories that come together to create this one story, overarching story, of, of Redwood. It's part of why it compelled me to write, to write the book. Um, and, and there's other things. I mean, let's face it, and, and I try to, if you will, I try to keep it real. I mean, we were young guys. We were single the Redwood Grill was known for beautiful people, whether they be men or women, they came to the grill and they were there. And so part of what I write about is some of that experience. I mean, you know, this says a touch of sex. I know a lot of people don't talk about that or like to talk about it, but you know, some of that was happening there. It was just that kind of environment. And I promised my partners, this part is funny. Um, that you know, when I first wrote the um, manuscript, I, pro- I promised Edwin in Cleveland that I would, um, it's this would not be a tell-all, like this would not be a tell-all, because you know they were like, you gonna write a book about the Redwood Krill, <laughs> and we're in it, <laughs> you know, what you gonna say, you know, and so I said, look, um, the bottom line is that I'm not writing to tell about anybody else's life or put anybody on the spot. No, it's not like that. I said, I think I have enough savvy in writing and. And um, to be able to to present this story without putting somebody else on the spot, especially when you have three men who are now married. Big difference. Right. (laughs) So and then, you know, uh, so anyway, long story short, the um, long story short, um, you know, it it, it includes some of uh, my personal experiences that 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 took place at at, at the grill as well. Um, and even part of my own love life because it was a bit complicated at that at that point, you know. Um, what else? Uh, Redwood is uh, if if the celebrities and and the serial killer really don't fascinate you enough, and I swear this is all true. It's documented. Um, at the end of the story, the end of Redwood, it even gets crazier. It gets crazier past crazy, the craziness of a serial killer working for you. Um, 
there was a guy who came along because we got to a point where we went through and there's a chapter in the book called Momentum Drift. Okay, so lots of people have a a, a dream or a a fantasy even, if you will, of going into the restaurant business. There are lots of people who've thought about owning a restaurant. I bet you most of the people in this room at some point has thought about opening a restaurant. Okay, Um, it's like American Idol. Everybody wants to be a singer. Um, but let me tell you something, when you get into the business and you realize that it is just so much work, it is so much work and you understand why so many restaurants fail, the failure rate of restaurants is really high and a lot of them fail within the first year. We lasted three and a half years, but I've seen them come and go. I've consulted with restaurants and, and, you know, it's just amazing. So, um, we 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 were able to m- make it three and a half years at but towards the um the, the end of that three and a half year cycle we started getting to a point where we felt like we wanted to be out of the restaurant business that's really what it came down to and we went through something called momentum drift that a lot of that's a technical term actually that some restaurants go through so have you ever seen a restaurant open up and then Six months later, you go there, and it's not really a restaurant anymore. It's more like a nightclub slash lounge, or it's become something else. The name hasn't changed, but they're just doing something different inside. That's called momentum drift. It, it just it, it happened recently to um, uh, a restaurant in, in uh, Little Italy. I'm trying to think of the name. There was an um, African-American-owned restaurant. Milan, Milan, that's exactly what happened to Milan. Milan opened, I was there the opening night, beautiful restaurant, great service. I was like, okay, they're doing, they, they're doing it. You know, the food was good. I did notice they were top heavy and I told, and I, because I know the owner, I brought it to his attention. I said, you're top heavy. You got a lot of management running around, a lot of chiefs and not enough Indians. And I said, I know what that can lead to. That said, Within six months to a year, I went back. They were charging at the door. They were playing music inside. It had become a different place. Now, I'm not disparaging them. I'm not disparaging the owners at all. I'm just telling you so that you, you know how to recognize it. It's, that's called momentum drift. Okay? It means fundamentally one of two things in the restaurant business. You're either doing something wrong, bad food, bad service, or some dynamics that are out of your control have shifted around you to cause that to happen. That's it. That's the only two explanations. Okay? And so it eventually happened to us. And ours was probably a combination of both. Before the Redwood Grill opened, which a lot of people may or may not remember, because this was 14 years ago, there was no big box uh, restaurants downtown, even at the harbor. Cheesecake Factory wasn't there. Planet Hollywood, which came and left, wasn't there, right? Harbor East wasn't even conceived of in, in John Paterakis's mind, you know. Um, David, uh, not David Hillman, the other David, uh, the developer of Power Plant, he uh, had not developed that, that whole section. So Power Plant, none of that was developed yet. So we sort of had this um, situation where, at least in that, in that Calvary Street corridor, after five, there was nothing really going on. So if we had something going on, people were coming to our spot. That's just the way it was, right? And then these big box restaurants started opening and the competition started coming. And we would watch our lines go from people waiting an hour to it barely being people in there. And we, we couldn't figure out why. So we'd send scouts down to the harbor. And the Cheesecake Factory line had all of our old customers lined up. <laughs> We're like, no, 
This cannot happen. We need you. Yes, it was just like that. So part of it for us was a process of competition and and that competition affecting our business that way. And then the other part of it was we were probably still doing some things wrong ourselves. And if I didn't, if I didn't own up to that, then I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be truthful. I wouldn't be honest. Uh, and so I feel like we could have done a better job of providing a, a higher level of service. I think there were nuances of the restaurant business that we had not gotten our, our arms around. And um, I have a good friend of mine right now, and he's in the restaurant business. Hello, come on in. Perfect timing. Even if you're five minutes late, you're perfect timing. Um, so, uh, I have a friend of mine, he's in the restaurant business in, in the DC area. This guy is super, super successful restaurant tour. He owns, um, five restaurants now and is opening another one. Okay. His restaurants are doing probably about $20 million a year. So he's doing very, very well and in full expansion mode. So I go in and I've analyzed, you know, his business model and watched kind of what he's done right. And I can't really say he's done much of anything wrong because he's done pretty much everything right in the restaurant business. And so uh, it gives me a real good gauge. And I can see from his business model some of the things we weren't doing right. Of course, part of his timing, a big part is location. You know, you got to be he's been in all the right locations. But even that was a matter of him deciding where he was going to be and making sure that where he was going to open was the right location. So I still have to credit that back to him. Okay, so there is a difference uh, between, you know, the way one person runs their restaurant and the success of it versus another. And that's like that with any business. If you look at it, it's again, the central issue here is right back down to entrepreneurship and um, how well we, 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 we run our businesses. So again, um, I don't want to bore you to death. I don't want to talk you to death. I'd really much rather be answering questions. I know most of you haven't uh, read the book yet, um, but I, I hope that you um, buy one tonight and um, uh, uh, read through it. And please, if you if you like it, feel free to um, go on to Amazon.com or one of the others. There's a bunch of different sites where you can leave reviews. Amazon is certainly a big one. Um, leave a review and, and let folks know what you think. Uh, it, I, I'm surprised how much people read them and, and use them to gauge whether or not they're going to um, pick up the book. The book is selling relatively well, um, uh, especially locally, but even in some other places. So I'm, I'm happy to say that. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm pushing because um, my second book is uh, on the way. I'm writing it now. Um, I'm not sure how long it's going to take me, but I pray it don't take me six years. But <laughs> but it, I'm working on it. and It's called Central Office. It's um, directly out of my experiences working as the as the um, managing director of food nutrition. I got a chance to work directly with Dr. Lonzo, some of the other top folks at this school system, and not just the top, but folks on every level. And what I saw shocked me and amazed me, and it floored me. And I, I, I just, you know, so I was so taken back by some of it that I felt like I had to write a book about it. And I, I am going to do it as a, as a novel, as a fiction, not as a nonfiction. Um, but I am going to write a fiction. Uh, I'm working on, rather, a fiction called, called uh, Central Office. And I promise it, it, it will um, have you uh, grip, gripping to the, to the pages. So once again, 
I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. You guys have no idea how much I appreciated um, uh, you coming out here and sharing this with me. Uh, I'm I'm just deeply moved because you could have been anywhere and you're here with me and I really, really appreciate it. So I hope that you can bombard me with at least a few questions and and give me a chance. You can come on up to the microphone and ask any questions you want to ask and uh, I'll be glad to answer those questions. Yes. Do you, should we take the microphone back to them? Yes, I, I, I will. I was actually going to wait, but you know what? I'll do it now. So, yeah, I will do it now. And I was going to, not a problem. I will. How about that? That's a good suggestion. I'm going to take your suggestion. Now, I'm going to warn you guys. I walked out without my glasses. So, and I only started needing glasses like three months ago, four months ago. I did not need glasses before then, so I'm just, I'm almost ashamed to say it, but I do. I need glasses. <laughs> huh? I might need your reading glasses. Like, I can see, but it's still a little blurry. Can I, no, can, can I use yours? Are yours reading glasses? Oh, yeah, let me have them. Oh, these are work. My eyes are like this big, aren't they? <laughs> All right, so let me see. There's a part that I've, I've read before that is kind of in, intriguing anyway to me, and I, I hope you find it is equally intriguing. Um, I'm going to read this because um, first it, it is involving the, um, the character in the book, uh, Shorty, or the person. I don't want to call him a character because he's real but the person shorty. And this was um, right at the end of my relationship with him and um, sort of something that sort of played out towards the end. And it's just uh, a, a, just a, a strange and interesting sort of exchange that happened here. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share it with you. And um, let's see here. We start. Yeah, what was happening is, uh, I'll set it up for you. I think it's a little easier. He called me early, early, early in the morning because um, he had gotten assaulted and he needed a ride. And uh, he didn't have anybody else to call, so he called me. The phone rang. Um, Hello, I said. Hello, Rod, it's Shorty. I didn't mean to call you so late. He said, slurring, I need a big favor. What kind of favor do you need at 2 o'clock in the morning? I'm on Pennsylvania Avenue. I got stuck up on my way home. These, these dudes jumped me and took all my money. I'm just trying to get home, man. Did you call the police? Call the police? For what? I'll be waiting there all night for the police. This the hood. What do you think they're going to do? Take a stupid report and send me walking? And I just got in bed. Give me a minute to get myself together. Just then, Karen was awakened by the sound of my voice. Who is that? She, she whispered softly. I covered the handset. It's Shorty. Then I paused for a minute. What does he want? He got mugged on the way home tonight. I said as I muffled the phone. Oh, boy, she replied, sliding back into the covers. Look, give me about 20 minutes, I told Shorty. I'll come get you. Where are you? I asked begrudgingly. 
I'm on a pay phone at Pennsylvania Dolphin. It's near the market, he said. Man, if you're not there when I show up, I'm leaving. I don't like being down on Pennsylvania Avenue this late at night, I replied emphatically. I felt Karen's hand slip off my body. Where are you going? She whispered softly. I hung up the phone. I'm going to give him a ride home. I replied, attempting to stifle a yarn. She twisted her head towards me. What? Jesus. Keep your phone on and be careful, she murmured softly, stroking my forearm. Outside, the late September chill quickly reminded me of why I didn't want to leave the comfort of my warm bed. So I drove fast. Within about 15 minutes, I arrived at Shorty at the place Shorty said he'd be. My eyes perused the sidewalk, searching for him. I saw him sitting alone along the curb. I pulled my car over and tapped on the horn. He rose to his feet, brushing his pants as he stood up. He was looking rough. I noticed that his lip was bloody and his left eye was swollen. Blood was also smeared across his shirt. As he opened the door, a pungent draft of alcohol whisked through the car and into my nose. You look like you've been in a war, I said, reaching into my glove compartment in search of something from the wipe his lip other than the sleeve of his jacket. You're lucky they didn't kill you. One of them pointed a gun right at me, and he asked me for all my money, he explained. I figured I was a goner. All I had was $25. I gave it to the one dude, but he didn't believe me, so he kept punching me, and he told me he was going to kill me if I didn't give him everything I had. After they searched my pockets, they realized I didn't have anything. He was still pointing the gun right at me. I just stared in his eye. I didn't say nothing. Then they took off running in the alley. I continued driving down the partially darkened streets. People are crazy in this city, I responded. You got to watch every step you make, especially out here. I'm glad you're okay, though. You're going to be sore when you wake up, I added, looking over his body. Which way are we going? Make a right right up there, he said, pointing towards the next street. I'm going to my sister's house. We eventually landed on a dark, narrow street lined with several boarded-up houses on each side, though a few of them were occupied. Slow down. You can let me out right up there on the corner. You sure? I asked hesitantly. This block looked more dangerous than the block where you were mugged. So I slowed down, eventually coming to a complete stop. I glanced into the mirror on each side and quickly perused the streets around us. Here, I said, reaching into my wallet to give him some cash. Take this. It should hold you over until you get paid. Just hit me back then. Good looking out, he grumbled, before tucking the money into his sock. I'll see you at work. Yeah, I said. I'll be there tomorrow, he replied as he stepped out of the car. I wound down the passenger window to continue the conversation. If you need me, call me, but hopefully not at two o'clock in the morning, I offered with a faint chuckle. Stay off these streets at night. It's too dangerous. He leaned over, almost placing his head into the window. Man, I know everything about these streets. I was born in these streets and raised in these streets. These streets giveth and these streets taketh away, he murmured with a menacing snicker. I turned back towards him, staring him squarely in the eye. I said, man, I was taught that the Lord is who giveth and the Lord is who taketh away. He's got the power, not these streets, shorty. These streets don't own you. He grinned. The Lord. 
Where did he live? Off White Lock? In the village? On Pennsylvania and Dolphin? Or out in Green Spring Valley somewhere with the rich white folks? Do he look like me? Do he see what I see? The Lord don't giveth us nothing. Look around these streets. He extended his hand, pointing towards the men standing near the light posts. Nothing but dope fiends, crackheads, pushers, and broken down buildings. Oh, and don't forget them hoes. They're on every corner too. If the Lord can't get me out of this hood, why do I need him? He added with an unapologetic grin. Then brushed away a trickle of blood from the corner of his lip. Tapped the car door twice and walked off. I watched him momentarily before driving away. And that was the last time that I saw him. So, thank you. I hope you enjoyed that. Um, but, uh, yeah, feel free to um, ask any questions that you might have, um, and I'll do my best to answer them. Right. My yes. name is Frederick Grant, Fred Grant, and I have I know many, you, Fred Grant. I know you do, because <laughs> I had many good times at the Redwood Grill, and that's why I came here today to tell you that thank you for some good times. Thank you, man. At one time, your restaurant, it morphed into a club. That's we right. We were dancing in there. That's right. <laughs> having a good time. But there was a, a club that opened across the street from you on the corner. What's the name of that club? Do you recall that place? No, that you mean Larry up? Stewart's? You no, know, it was a place right... Because uh, when we were there, there was only, nothing else. Only Larry Stewart was there? Yeah, it was just us and Larry Stewart. Not until well after we left. Then, of course, Redwood Trust opened. Yeah, Redwood Trust. Yeah, that was way after us. I see. Yeah, All way right. after us. Yep, well, in, the, in the 2000s. We had a great time there. Uh-huh. All right. Absolutely. Thank you, man. I appreciate that. Anybody else? Any questions? Wow. Okay. I made it through with one question. Man. Okay. So um, once again, I, I, I just want to. Th- oh, come on. Okay. Is, is the book completely. Is this work? Is, is the book completely uh, nonfiction fact based or did you weave. Embellish. Any, did any, I embellish? Yeah, any. Poetic or artistic? No, I took. I really took no. um, uh, I don't want to say poetic liberty, but no liberty uh, um, at all in terms of authoring the book um, from the standpoint of deviating from truth. Um, In fact, it's quite the opposite. I actually had to scale it back because there were some things that I just felt like I couldn't include in the book. Like there was just things I couldn't include, but, um, but I, I included as much as I felt like I could. And every single story in here is real. Every single thing that happened is true. There's no embellishment. You know, someone was reading, they said, you shouldn't say based on a true story. You should have said true story. Yeah. Yeah. But I didn't realize that until well after the book was published. Had I thought about that, I would have never said based on a true story because it is a true story. Yeah. How are you? Better now. Good. Uh, there seems to be a lack of uh, black restaurants here in Baltimore City. Wow. And um, 
my family's involved in in a club uh, restaurant okay. activity, but uh, um, black on black violence seems to be a problem. Yeah. Um, do you have any ideas on how to curb that so the yeah. businesses can maintain their liquor licenses? Man, you hit it right on the head. Let me tell you something. That's such an important question, and I probably should have talked a little more on that early on, but I'm glad you brought it up. First thing, it's two parts to that. One, today, if you left out this library right now and you were going downtown to find a black restaurant to eat at, where would you go? That's the saddest commentary that I can possibly state about the, the, the state of Baltimore's uh, Baltimore's black entrepreneurship. And it's not just it's not just the entrepreneurs. It's the city there. We, we still have issues in the city. And that is a bellwether. It's a litmus test for what's really happening in terms of growth for African-American developers. The fact that we don't have any black restaurants downtown. Yeah, but uh, no, but I'm, I'm going to go to that. That's part two. That's the second part of your question, which is equally as important. So if you get into the book, you're going to read when we turn into a club, as Fred illustrated, right? We turned into more of a nightclub towards the end after that momentum drift. And we were even successful doing that. Right. We partnered with uh, a couple of the big radio stations and we were just doing our thing. A major fight that I write about one of the biggest fights I've ever seen and been right in the heart of broke in the restaurant. A person got shot. That's in the book, okay? Um, luckily, they didn't die, but it happened. So, unfortunately, this this problem that we have with with black on black crime is an is an epidemic, right? And what I notice is a interesting trend with black restaurants or nightclubs. Okay, what happens is they open, you have a good crowd for a while, but then there's this other crowd that's always looking for the next good crowd now that up the first crowd that comes is generally a very good intention right they might be young professionals whatever they're they just that's not the crowd that creates those kinds of situations but there is a what i found and this is time and time again there's this second wave of folks who are looking for the next hot spot so they're always looking for it right and they 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 might be sort of t-shirts and, 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 and Timberlands, right? So it's a different crowd, all right? And when that second wave kind of finds the next hot spot, I'm telling you right now, you heed my words, pay attention to what's going on. That's when problems start erupting. It's when it happened to us. I've seen it happen to nightclub after black nightclub, white nightclub, it doesn't matter. So unfortunately, in the African-American community, what we're faced with is a very polylithic group of people in this room we have a lot of professionals okay but and we can all go out to a restaurant and eat and have a good time you could be in that same restaurant and another group comes in who are of a different maybe social economic whatever it is right and they think it's okay to yell right next to you to curse right next to you to do all kinds of things that are different from what you see as norm as the norm, which means we, we're not one, like a lot of people look at African-Americans as one group of people. We're not. We're not monolithic. We are polylithic. So we come in a lot of different, you know, sizes, shapes, and, and, and mentalities, right? And so until we get to a point where, where the broader base of African-Americans, right, 
and, and I don't want to sound like I'm demeaning anybody. I just, I think education is a big piece of it though. And that's just the truth. I mean, education is a big part of it. You know, we are behind the eight ball, but and as we remain behind the eight ball in education, that problem will not change in Baltimore. And look, perfect example, the casino. The first time I went to the casino, I went there, I experienced it. And I said, you know what? I said, this casino, I wish they had consulted with me. I swear I do. This casino is going to have some real problems if they don't fix that club in the middle of the casino with no walls. Baltimore, do, do, do they realize where they are? They, you know, people can go and drink and get in for free and party and with a nightclub with no walls and not have to pay to get in? Man, it's not. It's not and they've already had problems. They, I got invited to two meetings at the casino already about the first night it opened, two black women throwing pizza on each other. Come on. And it's been numerous fights like that since then. Okay? So what is it? It's back to, in my opinion, this is just a humble opinion, and I'm going to tell you, my opinion is worth two cents on the open market. That's it. It's only worth two cents. But my two-cent opinion is that until we get in front of the eight ball on education and see how important education is in, 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 in our lives and how much it can help improve our lives, then it's n- that part is not going to change. That's my opinion. Or West Baltimore, where do you go? They're like wastelands for nightlife, dinner, and things like that. Have you noticed that? Where do you go? Normally, I go to Inner Harbor East mm-hmm. or downtown, but yeah. I go to East or West Baltimore, and maybe for those reasons. Oh, I'm, I'm sure those, those are big, big parts of the reasons, yeah. Um, uh, it, it not even, I mean, you can't, you just, there's no, there's, there's not in the city that I know of. I mean, you start to even, um, what's the brother that has Birdland? Which, um, I can't think of his name, but he had a restaurant on Greenmount Avenue, black and blue, blacker than blue, blacker than blue, darker than blue. Yeah. Darker than blue. So even he moved way out Bel Air road, right? You know, and there's another successful Courtney's, I think it is, a Court, Courtney. Um, what's the one? Not, not Courtney's that was way out range, but there's another restaurant. I think the brother's name is Courtney. The restaurant may not be called Courtney's, but there is a, a black-owned restaurant out on um, Liberty, off of Liberty Road. That's Collins. Thank you. I'm sorry. Thank you, Collins. Yeah, so um, that's doing well. I've been out there, um, and, and that's doing well. But in, in terms of the inner city, inside the city limit, I mean, you got to throw your hands up because it's really not much at all. Oh, thank you. Oh, my God. Tony would kill me. Wow, you're right. I'm sorry. I forgot about phase 10. Phase 10 is surviving. Thanks. Thank you. Yes. Okay. Slim Butler? Yeah, okay. Good. Oh, great. That's promising. Yeah. Good. Good. I'm going to get over there. Oh, great. Okay. 
Good, good, good. And yeah, and I and so let's I'm I'm gonna support him and if you guys can go, please go support him because that's what they need. I'm always at phase ten. I, I can't even believe I forgot about phase ten because I'm always there and I love the food. And they've been through their hump, you know, and they consulted with me. Actually, Tony did, he'll be the first one to tell you, you know, I was able to give them a, a lot of really good feedback and advice, but um they're just doing well and I'm very happy for them. Yep, yep, I'm happy for them. There's another location on um, 25th Street, Terra Cafe. Where's that? Terra Cafe. Oh, Terra Cafe has been around a while, too. Yes. Um, I, they're not traditional, but they are a very good restaurant. They sell a, a very good, wholesome food, um, but they are a very good restaurant. I've eaten there a couple of times as well, and you're right. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, very good. Do, but do they open at night? Do they, are they open at night for, like, dinner service? Yes. I go there for sandwiches open, whenever I go. Um, Eight o'clock in the morning for breakfast. Okay. And they just had a book signing there this, this Good. weekend. Um, Donnie B. Moore. Oh, Glover. Glover. Yeah. Okay. Good. Okay. Yeah. Let's continue just to support them as well, man. That's powerful. Thank you so much for that. Um, so, any any more questions or comments? All right. Oh, go ahead. Well, Y'all being shy, man. What's up? Speaking to the microphone. I was there uh, a couple of days ago, and, uh, you know, he has a lot of artwork and nice things going on there. But someone, after the place closed, uh, obviously didn't like him or just didn't like folks. There. Where was this at? Uh, they threw a brick in the window. Oh. Uh, oh, I saw that. Yeah, I saw a broken, it's like a right. cardboard in the window right. now. and you see the brick where they threw the brick in. So I don't know whether he's going to begin to have problems or not. Yeah. That's sad. Yeah. I mean, but I, I could have just been a, a kid, you know, just doing something malicious. Hopefully it wasn't anything more than that. Uh, one last question I have for you. Um, talk a little bit to me about the, the writing process absolutely um, yeah you said it took you six years it did uh, how much time in actual writing i assume that meant you had a job to do or yeah. other interests that you were involved in right of that in that situation what was the actual time would you guesstimate you spent writing agitating about it etc okay so out of that six years off and on i'd probably say maybe a good year year and a half of writing and then it got super focused towards the end um, when I decided I made a decision that I'm going to finish this book. You know, so it was like six months every night writing, you know, just up because I write best at night, like one in the morning, two in the morning. Uh, you know, that's when I write best. So I would just be up writing for two hours a night and then just go to bed. And, you know, and I did that consistently for about six months. But before that, I would say about another year, uh, you know, from if you condensed all that time. So I'd say about a year and a half. Now, you know, I started studying what like professional writers who, who get paid to write um, and how many pages they write a day. And it varies from writer to writer. But it seems that the average like like writer who's made this their career is around 10 pages a day. Um, I found it difficult. I mean, I found it like difficult to even get five pages a day out. For me, because, you know, I was new to writing. I'm, I'm reading myself, like I said earlier, and tearing it up and not satisfied with it. And so I, there's a battle inside me that because I hold myself to the highest standard. And in and, and, and saying that, I want to share this with you also because it's important. 
when my first when the first iteration of Redwood came out, okay, it was it was it was littered with with typos. And and the reason why is because I, the book had been edited. I had the book edited. I had it edited twice actually. I paid for an editor and then my publisher had an editor. But when they printed the book, they printed the wrong version of it. So it, you can't it's like somebody sticking a dagger in your heart when you find that out. And thank goodness I even have somebody in this room who helped me with that. I think she might have been the first person, weren't you? You she was one of the first persons. Okay. All right. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Um, she was one of the first people that brought it to my attention. She called me and said, what's going on with this book? Why is there so many errors? I'm like, it's impossible. It can't have errors. The book had only been out like three days, been published. I said, no. She's like, yeah, it does. And then somebody else called me. Man, I started going through the book, and I was like, my heart's like, <laughs> you know, so I called a publisher and just ripped the publisher, like ripped the publisher. And we were going back and forth because she didn't believe me. And I said, you better get what I got <laughs> and read it. And so sure enough, it was basically the wrong um, version of the book, you know, had been published. And so we still went through, you know, I had uh, several people kind of going through it with me just to make sure. But um, we finally got all that done and, and, and they got the right version back out. So the version that you'll get after the first, I guess, two weeks if you bought a book within the first two weeks, you got a book full of errors. And I put that on Facebook. I just told people, look, I'm sorry it happened. It was a mistake. But if you got that book, bring it to me, and I'm going to give you another one for free. And a lot of people brought me their books. So I, don't know, I collected a bunch of books, and I gave them the other ones. So now it's all been corrected. It, it, it got done pretty quickly. About two to three weeks after the book came out, we got that, that problem corrected. But, you know, it's, not, it's just not easy. It's just, you know, you just got to be on top of all of this throughout the whole um, process. But thanks for that, for that question. I hope I answered it. Did I get you? Your... You did. I okay. have one follow-up to it. In the yes. Okay, sure. What in your, your background, what inspired you to uh, take on the task of writing a book? Well, let me, let me say, besides the story itself and how compelling I thought it was, another thing is I've always been writing. I think I wrote my first poem that got published at 18. Most people who know me don't even know that. They don't know that I've been writing secretly like for a long time. I've been writing poetry. I got probably enough poems to, to, to do a book. Um, uh, so I've always had this passion for writing. Um, um, but, you know, again, the, to do the book, it, I felt like it was time for me because of the story and because of where I was in my life to take it further, you know. And actually, I just had a meeting yesterday about turning Redwood into a movie. That's the second meeting I've had. Um, and I'm sure that it's it's going to happen. It's just a matter of, you know, the timing being right and the, the, the circumstances being right because I don't I don't I want it to be well done. I don't want to just do a movie. You know what I mean? I really want it to be well. So we're, we're, we're in discussion with that now and um, we'll see, um, you know, where it goes. Yeah. Hey, it's so good to see you again. Looking wonderful as always. Hey, Rod. Oh, I'm sorry. There was somebody that had a question before you. I'm sorry. I, I didn't see that. No, actually, I just wanted to make a comment. Please uh, do. <coughs> During that period of my life, I used to attend the Redwood, and uh, I like to consider that, that place at that time was uh, part of the first culture, if you will, because I enjoyed myself, and it was, uh, I really appreciate you 
because I always had a comfortable place to go to. Yeah, I remember, man. You were there a lot. You used to come in a lot, you know, just like I remember Fred having lunch. That was his thing for lunch, man. Didn't you do the crab cake? Yeah, you used to do the crab cake a lot. Like, there's certain people who used to come into the restaurant a lot, and I, I would remember what they had. There's a guy named Curtis who came in, and all he would get is a chicken Caesar salad. I know Curtis came all the time, chicken Caesar salad. He loved it. Um, but, yeah, a lot of people share that kind of experience. Um, I was in Disney World, and um, it was funny. This couple walked up to me, and they like, Rod, what's up? You know, don't you remember us? We met at your spot. We're married now. You know, we met at your spot. I've heard that 70 times. I mean, no exaggeration, I've heard it 70 times. There's so many people who met at our, at our restaurant. So a lot of people have some treasured memories from the grill. I guess it's my turn now. Now yes. it's your turn. Okay. Did you find your PR person or did the PR person find you? Um, I found my PR people. I have more than one. So I have a PR people that help here. Um, I've got uh, PR people in Atlanta. And I've got one in D.C. That, that I work with when I'm, you know, like pushing in D.C. So when I just did D.C., uh, on the 19th, I did the D.C. Public Library. And they came to me um, uh, and asked if, if they could do an author's event. So, um, but yeah, the, the PR people, and it's, it's, it, they're a, 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 a different group. Because, you know, you can, PR folks can range from X amount of dollars to a whole lot of money a month, you know, and it just depends. And um, they're they're the, the, you know, with most folks that I deal with, I like to see the work and then pay. PR people like to get paid and then want you to see their work. So it's it, you get a game, and you have to kind of balance yourself through that process to find the right one. Yeah, you're welcome. Yes. I got you next. What do you suggest we do to motivate uh, this generation to get into being entrepreneurs? I think that we need to have more discussions. I think we need to have more forums, more organizations that gear um, folks up to become entrepreneurs. That's another good question. Um, I've been a member of Black Professional Men on and off, I guess, for the last, I don't know how many years. I did a lot of mentoring. I've spoken to so many young people. I love speaking to young people. I love motivating young people and getting them to think about entrepreneurship. Um, we, uh, as a culture, just have a long way to go, I think, in really understanding because, again, it's not just about being entrepreneurs. It's really about, it goes back to education again. And what I mean is the education of understanding how to run your business. So not just, okay, yeah, I want to run a business, but, you know, are you prepared to run the type of business that you set off to run so that you don't make the same mistakes or, or fall into the same pitfalls that other folks have, have fallen into? You know, uh, the majority community, a lot of times, not every person, but a lot of the majority community has the benefit of having relatives that are successful entrepreneurs. I have lots of white friends I've gone to school with um, um, from from elementary school to college, you know. Uh, I went to key school in Annapolis, a private school in Annapolis, yeah. And one of the kids I went to school with, his dad, was, he was a Coleman. His father started uh, the Coleman Sailboat Company. I mean... I was broke. My parents didn't have that kind of money. So I learned entrepreneurship from my first business. 18 years old, I started a landscaping company while I was in college. It grew so fast. It grew faster than I was prepared for it to grow. But we, we accommodated it. I had a partner, and he and I were both in college. And um, uh, within three years, I had 10 employees. I was um, 
like 21 years old. I had an office on Ritchie Highway. Um, I had bought out another landscaping company and I had major contracts, major contracts. So that was just kind of, for me, it was a little luck and just innate. Like it's something that I was just born like to know the basics of it, right? What I'm saying to you is that most people are not going to start off owning a, re- a, a, a business at 18 and selling it by the time they're 23, right? Um, that just doesn't usually happen. Um, so I think that it's just a back to just making sure that we're educating ourselves and, 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 and preparing ourselves to be successful when we go into business. But we also need to keep preaching entrepreneurship to um, young African-American boys and, and girls. I think that that's extremely, extremely important. A lot of them have it in their blood anyway. They do, you know, so they just exercise it in sometimes the wrong ways, you know. Okay, last question. Yeah, I want to say hi. How you doing? How are you? Yeah, I didn't know you were writing a book until I saw you in the city paper. Okay. And I said, that's a friend of mine. That's Rod. Okay. I said, I didn't know you were writing a book. All right, Lonnie. I said, I'm going to come down here. And check you out. I've known Lonnie a long time, man. A long time. Thank you, Lonnie, man. I appreciate you. I appreciate every one of you. Teresa, thank you again. We appreciate you so much. We appreciate the library and every good thing that you guys do for Baltimore and for the community. And once again, I love you guys and thank you so much. Try to grab a book if you don't have one. Yes.